0: Did you know that every single episode of Myths and Legends is now on Spotify? Yes, that same app with millions of songs now also has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all of your favorite shows and discover new ones. To subscribe to our show, search for Myths and Legends, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now. And now, and now. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from Armenian folklore about a peasant girl with some high standards and an even higher IQ. You'll see how literacy programs could save your entire kingdom, and that it's always helpful for royalty to have a plan B. You know, just in case the whole absolute monarchy thing doesn't work out. The Creature this week is another reason to stay away from the beach. And it's not the sand or heat or sunburns, but angry sea monster babies. This is Myths and Legends, Episode 113 Occupational Hazard. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, it's an Armenian story that's set in Afghanistan. It's evidently spread around the entire region because there are Soviet era Russian versions that track pretty close to the Armenian version. We'll jump right into the story with a prince whose life is just too amazing. Prince Vakagan, the only son born to King Vaka and Queen Ashken, was royally bummed his mom had seen him first, and watched as he wandered along the palace. Shoulders slumped, and sighing loudly enough for everyone to ask what was going on, only for him to sigh again, and mumble, nothing, as he ambled on. Finally, enough was enough. Queen Ashken cornered the prince, and sat him down. She could see that he was in pain, and she wanted to know why. Back again sighed even louder. Life... Life was just too easy. It was like, wake up whenever you want, have people cook for you all the time, and not die of easily preventable illnesses. Obviously, it was terrible. He had to get out of here. Had to get down into the mud and grit and experience life. This whole palace was just a giant marble tomb, and it kept him from living among the people. His mother nodded her head. She understood. He'd been sheltered and now her son yearned to experience more in life. She looked into her son's eyes. Did he have any ideas where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do? Yes. He was so happy she understood. He had been hearing of this village, a hard and wonderful place named Atzik, and he dreamed of going there. His mother blinked a couple of times and pulled her hand away from her son's. Oh. Okay. What? What? stammered the prince. His mother shook her head. Nothing. Hey, this whole depression thing, was he sure it was because his life was too awesome? Was he sure it was that? Was he sure it wasn't innate? Vakagan sat up straight. How did his mom know her name? The queen smiled. Oh, she knew everything, and Vakakan should never forget that. Also, no. Wait, no to what? His mom shrugged. No to the weekend retreat to hang out with peasants. No to innate. Really, he could take his pick. No to all of it. He was the prince of Afghanistan, the only son of his father. He may be really into this peasant girl, but seriously, how many nice kings had stopped by willing to barter their own daughters for political power? Heck, Vakagan didn't even need to pick a princess. The girls of one of their nobles would do. Speaking of which, their best warlord's daughter just came of age. That sounded fun, right? A warlord father-in-law? The tears in Vakakan's eyes turned from tears of joy to tears of anguish, and he announced to the queen mother that he would not have anyone but a an nate. He couldn't stand being there anymore. He was going out. The prince slung his bow over his shoulder and grabbed the quiver that he had a servant fetch for him that morning. Sniffling, he looked at the door then faced his mother head on. He was a big, tough man, and he was gonna go hunting. Queen Ashken watched her son storm from the room. Brow furrowed. Wait, but you don't hunt, she called after him. But he was already gone. It was true, Vakakan didn't hunt. At 20, he was, according to the story, quote, very delicate, pale, and weak. And though everyone desperately wanted their sons to be friends with the son of the king of Afghanistan, Vakakan didn't want to hang out with any of them. Instead, he preferred the company of the guy who was paid to hang out with him, his servant, Nazar. I joke, the story says Nazar was a loyal and caring servant. All I'm saying is, his livelihood depended on him being a loyal and caring servant. So, whether it's genuine or not, he was really good at his job. Well, weeks before his mom uncovered the crush on innate, Vakagan and his servant friend actually had gone hunting. They'd set out in normal hunter garb so as to avoid all the autographs and selfie requests. You see, Vakagan knew he was very delicate, pale, and weak, and he wanted to make a change. It was a slow process but he was determined to make an effort. On one of his hunting trips, while passing through the village of Atsik, Vakugan found himself parched. He'd forgotten to bring any water and made a mental note to never make that mistake again. He had outrun Nazar in their pursuit of a deer and was now out of breath and lying on the ground. Fortunately, he chased the deer all the way to the edge of a village and all the young women were out filling containers with water from the local well. Prince Vakugan started crawling toward the well when one of the young women saw him struggling and extended a jug of cool water his way. He smiled, reaching for it. And that's when he saw the young woman's face. She was like an angel. In that moment, he knew this was the woman he would love for the rest of his days. Or would have, if another hadn't snatched the water jug from her hand, and told her to get lost. The second woman extended the water jug out to Vakagan, who at this point didn't care who was giving him water, so long as he got water, and he reached for it only for the woman to stare at him in the eyes while she poured it out onto the ground. The prince almost ate wet dirt as, five more times, the woman filled the jug and poured it out on the ground before him. Vakagan laid there just staring at her. What was her deal? Finally, she picked up another jar she had set aside and handed it to him. Through gulps of water, Vakagan asked her why she wasted so much, only to finally give him some in the end. Didn't she know who he was? The woman shook her head. No, of course she didn't know who he was. Who was he? Definitely not the prince. That's for sure. Vakagan replied. Anyway, why all the joking around? The woman shook her head again. She wasn't joking. They didn't joke out here. No, the water was too cold when he arrived. He was too thirsty. It would have made him sick. Her own jug was sitting in the sun so by the time she emptied five of them, it was warm enough for the parched hunter to drink. The prince stood, looking her up and down. She rolled her eyes, but then he asked to know her name, who her father was. The woman pursed her lips. She was a peasant. They were peasants. Who cared who her father was? Oh. Her name was innate, and her father was the local shepherd. But who wanted to know? Bakugan took a step backwards. "'Whoa, okay, so suddenly it's bad to ask someone's name?' "'It wasn't, as long as he told her who he was "'and where he came from.' The prince smirked. "'Did she want the truth or a lie? "'Now, I've never been hit on "'by a suspiciously pale and delicate hunter. "'But, around this point of the conversation, "'I will probably say something along the lines of, "'What do you think I want to hear?' and then just leave the thirsty idiot standing in the sun. Anate, however, is far smarter than I am. She didn't miss a beat, and fired back that she wanted the answer that best matched the man's dignity. I hope Vakagan realized just how intellectually out of his depth he was, but regardless, he simply responded that he couldn't tell her the truth right now, but soon would. To which Anate replied that he could give her back her water jug, thank you very much, and then left. At this point, Nizar, the servant-slash-rent-a-best-friend, came tumbling through the brush. Bent over with hands on his knees and trying to catch his breath, he completely missed a night. But that didn't matter because Vakagan talked about her all the way home. That night, when he left Vakagan to clean up for dinner, a dinner to which he was never invited despite his paid best friend status, he walked out of the palace and then walked back via a secret passageway where he found the queen waiting for him. And yes, it was Nazar who told the king and queen about innate. because he might be their son's mandatory best friend, but their names were the ones on his paychecks. Wait, why are you upset about this? Do you know how many kings would love to be in your position? The answer is all of them all the kings, Nizar replied. Anate's father hung his head. The servant and his two noblemen were here asking for his daughter's hand in marriage. And while it might be a good match, he knew he didn't have that level of control over her, or, well, any level of control. The old shepherd announced that if Anate consented to the match, then they would have his blessing. If not, well, she was her own woman, and that was that. Yeah, the king and queen came around. It might be because they loved their son and wanted him to be with the woman he loved, or it could have been all the moping. It was probably actually all the moping. Anyway, they sent Nazar and two noblemen to propose to Inate, because nothing is more romantic than having your potential fiance's employees pop the question. The men made small talk as they waited around for Inate to return. Finally, she did. And it was weird. Weird because she could read. She could read really well. Well enough to teach it to anyone who would listen to her. Nearly the entire village was literate, which led to some great discussions and kind of a lot of graffiti. Nizar smiled. That was nice. He had never been one for reading or learning, and he was doing all right. Not as well as innate, of course, but you know. He motioned to the nobleman, who opened the box he carried. It was filled with gold and jewels. Nazar explained that they were all for her. A gift from the king. Anais smirked. And why was she, a lowly shepherd's daughter, receiving jewels from the king? Nazar announced with no small degree of showmanship that the guys at the well a few weeks back? That was him and his best friend slash cash cow, Prince Vakugan. She had given the prince water. Anate thought about it. The guy was a bit on the pale, weak, and delicate side. But he was good looking. She told Nazar that much, and then asked what the prince's trade was. Nazar nearly laughed in her face. He took her aside and explained that he was also from a working class background. So he understood the question. But it really didn't apply here. The royals? They didn't work. Ever. No one in their families had worked for generations. No one would work for generations to come. And Nate would never have to work again. Trades didn't matter. She sighed. Okay. Tell him thanks for the offer, but hard pass on the proposal. Nizar was speechless. Who was she to refuse the offer? The prince proposing to a daughter of a peasant. This was a slam dunk. This was the safest bet there was. Quickly, He demanded to know why. Anate shrugged. What if the prince thing didn't work out? What was his fallback? Where was he then? Nizar couldn't believe this. It was hereditary. It was gonna work out. Uh, I don't know. Not if he gets deposed, Anate pointed out. The servant allowed that one. It was a solid point. But still, that wasn't gonna happen. The prince was a smart guy, Sure, the pair had their little meat cute because he went hunting in the desert without water, but, you know, even smart guys made bad decisions from time to time. Nazar spun around. What are you doing? And was already packing up the gold and jewels. She had sworn a long time ago never to marry a man who didn't have a trade. And princes were no exception. If he wanted her hand in marriage, he knew where she was and what he had to do. With that, she said a polite goodbye and saw the men out. The high five between the king and queen that night could be heard for miles around. They had done everything by the book. It wasn't their fault that Nate was a little snob who didn't get that the point of being royalty was never having to work. Their son hated work. He'd go for one of the other king's daughters and this whole crush thing would be nothing more than a pit stop along the way. Wisely, they put on their sad faces and went to go tell their son the terrible wonderful news we'll see how Vakugan takes that news but that will be right after this alright now back to the show so he's still at it then, Anit said, looking down at the rug. She had already told the prince she didn't want any more gifts. The prince knew the real price of her hand in marriage. Nizar sighed. The prince knew, and the prince had paid it. The rug wasn't just bought with the prince's wealth. It had been made by the prince. For Anit, to marry her. he burst out laughing. The rug was... Beautiful, there was no way that doofus prince had made this. But Nazar was serious. The prince would be happy to make another one to her exact specifications. Or, if she wanted, she could come watch him work. He had been at it for nearly a year. They'd called in the best weaver in the world from Persia, and after some initial setbacks, the prince reached his breaking point and rose above it. And then there was a montage where he made a ton of progress during a three-and-a-half-minute inspirational song. Yeah, the prince had made this. Annate was speechless. So, there was more to this prince after all. She just wanted him to learn a trade. And yet, he'd become a master over the course of a year. For her, she smiled and rolled up a carpet she herself had woven years ago, handing it to Nizar. She accepted his proposal. They had a beautiful wedding, though it wasn't without its share of confusion. Nazar, the prince's best friend, had been sent on an errand deep in the country, and he didn't return. They delayed the wedding for as long as they could, but countless envoys came back without a word. Anate and the prince could only assume that Nizar had been attacked on the road, or devoured by some wild animal. Their wedding day was a bit sadder because of his absence, but the disappearance of the prince's only friend was quickly overshadowed by matters of state. The king and queen, though everyone thought they had many years left, ended up not having much time at all. First the king, and then the queen, and suddenly the throne was open, and Vakugan and Inate rose to take their places it was a few years later that Inate sat her husband down. She told Vakugan that, while she meant no offense by this, it was kind of inherently offensive, so he kind of just needed to take it as best he could. The kingdom and ruling and running the government, Vakugan was really, really bad at it. Like, possible imminent revolution bad. Vakugan clenched his jaw, and his fists became white with rage. But then he exhaled. Oh my gosh, thank you for saying it. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've been listening to these advisors, but I'm starting to think it's because I'm paying them that they only tell me what I want to hear. I'm at the end of my rope. When my parents died, they left no instructions. Just a legacy to protect. And Nate nodded. Well, he couldn't just wait for it to fall into place. He had to do something. He had been removed from the people for far too long. It was better when he had Nazar, and they went hunting. But ever since he spent an entire year learning how to weave, and Nazar died, he had lost touch with the common person. He needed to understand his people again, to reach out to them, before they reached out to him by storming the palace. Vakagan knew enough by now to listen to his very smart wife, so he asked her what he needed to do. A couple days later, Vakagan stood in full peasant garb, and he was ready he was going to spend 20 days traveling around his kingdom on foot, learning the plight of the common person. As his last act as king, before he slid into the crowd of beggars that passed the palace every morning, he put the queen in charge in his absence. She kissed her husband goodbye, telling him that she would keep things just as he left them until his return. He told her to watch for him on day 20, and Nate said goodbye to the man she loved, and watched him disappear into the crowd she knew that this little walkabout would be good for him, and he might actually learn something. He had learned to weave, after all, but it didn't really matter if he learned something. As queen, Anaet's power was limited. She couldn't simply tell the king to do something, or command the people on her own, but, if her husband was off pursuing poverty cosplay, and explicitly left her in charge, well, that was another thing altogether. So that very day, and Nate went to work fixing all the problems Vakugan created, all before the king returned. Hey, what's with the guy with the bricks? Vakugan asked his new beggar friend while he passed out bread. The plight of the common person, as it turned out, was difficult and Vakakan understood that now having spent two weeks traveling the country on foot and begging for his own dinner he made it as far as the town of Peros Vakakan passed out the last bit of bread he had realizing that he didn't have any left over for himself he was starving but he knew he could go back to the castle at the end of this experiment these guys however had no other reality this was their life the other men thanked him profusely and reply that the guy with the bricks, well, he was a priest. Supposed to be a nice guy too. So nice, that he didn't even walk on the ground when he was in town, for fear that he might accidentally kill an insect. He was also heavily involved with charity work. He'd give anyone who knew a trade a job at his own temple, and set them up in a faraway land at the end. Once a week, he came to Peros to recruit new workers. So, naturally, anyone who knew a trade went with him, as long as you had some skill, he was always hiring and really didn't care. Vakagan pushed through the crowd and approached the priest, who greeted him with a meek smile. The king, still in disguise, introduced himself as a worker from a distant land who had come to Peros seeking employment. The priest nodded with bright eyes. That was all he needed to hear. He paid well, and his home was just a short several miles outside of town. Somehow, the priest and his new recruits made it to their new home the next day. It took quite a while, what with all the sweeping away insects before setting down a brick for each step the priest took. The group approached the temple so slowly, though, that Vakagan had plenty of time to take it in. It was an incredible tower, surrounded by walls that reached nearly as high. Vakagan was confused. Why did a priest have such a large home? He looked all around him. The men and women who had accepted the priest's offer were accompanied by nearly as many porters and servants already in the priest's employ. Large, serious men who never spoke to the new hires. At last, the group passed over the threshold and the large doors on the wall clanged down behind them. With it, the priest sighed and stepped down clumsily from the bricks. Hmm, interesting. Bakugan figured that the entire place must be insect-free, so maybe that was why the priest could relax a bit. Meekly, the priest managed a, your employment is right through this door, before shuffling off. Vakagan and the others looked toward the darkened room, its doors opened wide. It looked to be a little more than a cave, and stood in stark contrast to the opulence of the rest of the compound. Vakagan took the lead, and strode in confidently. He was already halfway down the darkened hallway, when he heard the first shriek. A few of the men and women were having second thoughts they were shouting something about having heard of this place, about the devil priest. Those deepest in the cave quickly spun around, only to watch the waffling newcomers double over, spears protruding from their stomachs. The portcullis hidden on the far side of the room slammed shut, and the remainder of the group sprinted toward it, trying frantically to lift it. They watched in horror, as the rest of the workers on the outside of the cage were put down, even if they begged to go down into the darkness all it took was a few servants thrusting spears through the grate to encourage Vakagon and the other workers to step away from the portcullis. There would be no escape. Instead, they would go down into the darkness. Their work was waiting for them. The figure before them was little more than a shadow. He was a fellow prisoner, put in charge of new captive orientation, and yet, Vakagan would recognize his best friend anywhere. It was the long-lost Nazar. The king knew better than to embrace his friend at that moment, though it took every ounce of willpower to remain silent. What had he survived? His friend's eyes were sunken, and his cheekbones sharp, and Vakagan could count every rib beneath the friend's tattered shirt as they walked along. First, their group passed a room full of people on the ground, calling out in agony as they died. The next room held steaming, putrid-smelling cauldrons. The third room held the opening to the mines. Weak and frail, Nizar announced that they had all been lied to. If they hadn't caught on to that yet, the people being stabbed outside, the people lying around dying from starvation in the first room, and the cauldrons full of said dead people in the second room, this was their new life. Depending on the town, the priest lured people who knew trades and those who did not. Those who knew trades worked until they died. Those without skills went to the mines or the slaughterhouse. There was no escape. Just then, a horn blasted behind them as the priest appeared on the platform above the miners and the new recruits. One man cursed the priest's name. The priest pointed and a few of the burly servants found the heckler and took him out he was never seen again. The priest admitted that what happened in the courtyard was regrettable, but at least the ones below were still with them. He was about to ask what their professions were when Vakagan stepped forward into the light. He told the priest that these were his workers, and he was their leader. They were weavers, every last one of them, and they made rugs and clothes for kings and queens. Any thread that was put in their hand would be worth triple its weight in gold when they were done with it. The priest could even put him to the test. Nearby captives stole a glance at one another, but no one dared to make a sound. The priest nodded, put him to the test, huh? Well, he intended to turning the priest commanded that the entire group be brought up to the warehouse. You know the one filled with slightly less death. The nice one Vakagan looked at Nazar, who still hadn't recognized him. No, he said firmly, they were used to working in dark, loud places. Here will be just fine but one stipulation. No meat. They had this thing where, if they ate meat, it would instantly kill them. It was a totally real and legitimate medical issue that his whole team of workers coincidentally shared. Vakagan watched the face of the priest, as the man didn't exactly buy it, but he didn't know enough about medieval medicine to question it. Fine. The new guy and his crew would be provided with bread and fruit. But... If the first thing they made didn't fetch at least three times its weight in gold, they would all be sent to the slaughterhouse, with, like, a dash of torture thrown in first. Silent panic broke out all around him, but vakakan took another step forward. Their first work would fetch four times its weight in gold. He would bet his life on it. Yeah, that's what I just said, but very well, four times it is, idiot. And with that, the priest disappeared behind the edge of the platform. As it turns out, when you have nothing going on except being imprisoned indefinitely, it's easy to find time to work. Nizar already knew the guard's schedules, so it was easy for the rest of the crew to pretend to work while they were being watched. All other times, Vakagon toiled alone. He wove and wove and wove. Even in the dark, it was easy. Nizar, with food that wasn't people, seemingly came back to life. And there was something about this brave and maybe a little stupid stranger, weaving day in and day out, that reminded him of his life years ago. Of a better time, when he got paid to be a best friend and not help slaves through their orientation packet. Oh well, probably coincidence. Then, one day, or at least what they thought was day because it was impossible to tell amid the gloom, they awoke to find Vakagon chatting to one of the slavers the work was finished. As they hefted the rolled up rug onto the cart, he explained to the men that his boast was still good, but the rug had ended up way bigger than he intended. For it to truly get four times its weight in gold, there was only one buyer in the entire kingdom with enough cash on hand to pay them what it was worth. Elsewhere, the sun shone brightly, and innate, the queen, sat in the gentle breeze. She had ruled so well that, one, people were happy again, and two, no one even realized that the king was gone. Still, even innate was starting to grow wary. It was now 10 days past the time when Vakagan was scheduled to return, and there hadn't been any word at all. That morning, she was so distracted, as news arrived of various envoys coming in, that she nearly missed the merchant from Pros. as he entered the throne room, hefting an enormous rug for sale. Queen Ine asked the price without looking at it, and the man was audacious enough to ask for four times its weight in gold. Surprised, Ine almost had her guards toss the merchant and his rug immediately out onto the street. But the guy insisted that it was a magic rug, and its creation had cost them so much. You see, whatever house it was in was blessed and those who dwelled in said house would never run into misfortune. It was covered in magic talismans or something. The queen narrowed her eyes. Okay. Show me. And Nate took one look at the unfurled rug, and immediately paid full price for it. No questions asked. As her servants counted out the money, the queen insisted that she must meet this craftsman, the one responsible for such a magical rug. The merchant shook his head. That was impossible he'd bought it from someone in India, who had purchased it from a man in Arabia, who, and Nate cut him off, but, didn't the merchant just say, that the production of the rug, had cost him a lot, oh, no, the man replied, his face contorting, the queen shook her head, and motioned to the guards, who immediately seized the money back, and threw the merchant in a prison, he would stay there, until he told them everything, as for her, she was going to prose, And she sounded the alarm. The priest's merchant servant was confused. How had she known? Of course, if he had ever been taught to read, as Innate had taught her husband and pretty much everyone else who wanted to learn on her relentless literacy campaign, he would have never delivered the rug in the first place. The rug, whose, quote, talismans were actually a message that read, quote, My incomparable Innate, I have fallen into a terrible hell. He who brings you this brocade is one of the terrible demon jailers of this hell. Nazar is with me. Seek us east of Poros, beneath a walled temple. Without your help, we shall all perish. Vakugan. Personally, I would have just gone with, Hey, this is your husband. Please help me. Here's the address. Also, bring swords. Anit ran to the balcony, where she stood before her gathered subjects. Their king had been kidnapped. If they love their king, they should follow her to prose. That didn't quite get the rousing cheer that she had hoped for, so she tried again. Okay, if you love me, then follow me to prose. A deafening cheer went up from the crowd and all the people grabbed anything they could use to bludgeon a demon jailer to death. At his large temple, the demon priest looked out the window. Oh, hey, nice. Hey, grab the bricks. Yeah, Terrence. Terrence, grab the bricks. What? There's a crowd heading toward the temple. Yeah, it means money. Hey, and more than a few new workers. The priest gave the order to throw open the iron gates. To allow all those stupid worshippers inside and... uh Huh... Why are they slowing down? And Nate and her army plowed into the fortress and cut through the first line of jailers, leaving the peasants she had roused from the streets of the capital to finish off what was left of them. The priest rushed out in a show of tears, begging to know what was going on. And Nate slowed down her horse and looked him square in the eyes. The priest insisted that this was a place of worship. Why were they bringing death inside? Doubt began to grow and they began to explain what they had heard. Wait, they were sure this was the right place, right? She turned to one of her officers. This was the address, right? I mean, if we got it wrong, this is really not great, guys. And while her back was turned, the demon priest saw his opening. Swiftly, he slipped a knife from his cloak and rushed toward the young queen, only to have his sternum crushed by a well-timed horse kick. Anate heard the scream and turned just in time to watch the priest die flat on his back, a knife still in his hand. Huh, turned out they did have the right place. Good horsey. Seeing their employer and their meal ticket die, the other jailers quickly surrendered and told Anate everything about the fortress, about the death and cannibalism and slavery. Then they showed her the door to the darkness. Vakagan and Nazar were the last ones out. King Vakagan supported his friend every step of the way, helping him the way he had helped the prince so many times before. Queen Nate ran to them, embracing first Nazar, and then her husband. Nazar was little more than a skeleton, but he couldn't help but smile, happy to see his friends alive again. All those years ago, he would have never imagined this. Today. And Nate had saved their lives. Vakugan shook his head. Well, actually, no, she didn't. She didn't save them today. Nate grimaced and stood. Okay. This ought to be good. Vakugan smiled and sidled up next to his wife. She didn't save them today. She had saved them years ago, when she demanded that that weak, pale, and delicate son of a king learn a trade. I like how Inate insists on honesty and equality early on, and Vakagan only loves her more for it. Also, I love that Inate's chief reason for Vakagan learning a trade was that, quote, a ruler may become a servant. And that's exactly what happened. He did become a servant, and the trade she had forced him to learn way back when actually saved him. Next week, it's our very first, very long overdue foray into stories from India, with an epic story I am so excited to share. Check it out. I want to say thanks to H Stocks, Ninja Mole, Gradually Bored, hopefully not when you're listening to this podcast, Bye bye slash Sell Sell, Fallen Star 1225, SME 01, Nami B, Addy 64387382746, New Queen of Sheba, Kiki Don't Touch Me, Sam Jones MD, and Death Star for Cutie for leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much. It's great to hear from you. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place, and you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of panda feces tea, you can get extra episodes, source-pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that won't make you horribly sick for a mere $29,000 a pound. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. Not panda feces tea, never panda feces tea. The creature this time is the Hakalak, from the Shimshim Native American coastal peoples of Northwest North America. Okay, so if you see a helpless baby splashing around in the water, you should definitely rescue that baby, unless you shouldn't rescue that baby. Because while that baby might be a normal human baby, it could also be a decidedly not normal shape-shifting sea monster baby, doing his daily chores of pretending to be human and pretending to drown. Let's say you made the right ish choice of rescuing said baby from drowning. The baby will stop crying as you comfort it, wading back to shore. You'll be soaked, but you just saved life. It was worth it. That's when you'll hear the shrieking. There on the beach is the baby's mother, and she's not happy about what you did. Of course, she thinks you're stealing her baby. Now, there are a lot of ways this could go. I, for one, would point to my waterlogged clothes, and the baby's still sputtering up seawater, and tell her to keep track of her kid better. I mean, it's a baby. They can barely move as it is. There's no excuse for it being that far out in the water. Really, say whatever you want though, because no matter what you do, it's not going to end well for you. She'll be so mad that you didn't try to abduct her kid, that you actually just saved, that she'll call a storm to kill you and everyone else on the beach, because she's actually a shape-shifting sea monster. Her whole thing is that she commands her sea monster babies, to go out and pretend to be drowning human babies, and when people save them, she shrieks at them, also in human form, until she decides to bring on a storm to murder everyone on the beach, despite having the power to bring down the storm in the first place, and cut out like, five extra steps. Maybe she needs some justification to murder a whole beach, but that seems like it would take some pretty heavy cognitive dissonance on her part for that to be the reason. There's really no good takeaway from this one, If you don't save the kid, and it turns out to be a sea monster, they're just going to move farther down the beach and trick someone else. Because that's not really something people should ignore. Basically, yeah, save the kid. And if the parents get angry with you about that, well, get away from there as fast as possible. Because either a storm is coming, or those normal humans that are mad at you about saving their child are probably not people you want to be around anyway. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band, Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.